Well, we have a lot to cover in um, the next five weeks, um, just because of the the extensive nature of worship, the cosmic nature of worship. And so we will attempt to do what we can. Um, we'll probably not hit everything that you want, or but I certainly would allow for questions along the way. Um, but uh, let's go ahead and get started with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this, your day. We thank you that week after week, you call us into your presence, uh, and that you reveal yourself to us, and that you call us your sons and daughters. Uh, and that we have the privilege of, work, of worshiping before your throne with the saints of old. Father, I pray that you would bless our uh, conversation of these next few weeks, give us clarity, uh, give wisdom, give understanding that we may behold more clearly with wonder and awe and gratitude who you are uh, and what you have done for us, your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So you've got a little handout here on the front you got the five topics. I wanted to give you kind of a sense of where we were going, um, and I'll highlight each one each week, so you, you know if you, if someone comes next week, they'll know what they missed, um, and they can listen uh, after after the fact. But this gives kind of a sense of, of where we are and where we're going and how we're structuring the class. the The idea, the 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 name for the class in Beauty of Holiness comes from Psalm uh, 29, of, uh, and, and well as other places in Scripture. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And I wanted to explore specifically as we get towards the end uh, the role of beauty and holiness in worship, but also laying the foundation today of what worship is. Um, you see there in the, in the opening part of your little booklet there, the objective to understand the content and purpose of corporate worship as a means of God's grace to his covenant community and as a means to remember his faithfulness, to understand how the weekly service um, and, and how that helps to weave the gospel into our hearts. So I wanted to start with um, the Westminster uh, Catechism, um, one of our standards of, uh, of, of the theological standards for our denomination and for our church, just to give an understanding of what, where they're coming from. So with question 85 from the Catechism, what doth God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us for sin? And the answer is to escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin. God requires of us faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life, with a diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. A few questions down, question 88. What are the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. So you have there laid out those three aspects of word, sacrament, and prayer uh, as the content and context for, uh, for worship. And I, wanna, I also want to distinguish between the idea of, of what we mean by worship. We're speaking specifically, and this will, um, we'll talk about this more particularly, but specifically about Lord's Day worship, what it means when we gather together um, as the congregation uh, corporately, which is a, a word that has, um, has business connotations now, um, but literally the word corpus body, as the body of Christ, as the bride of Christ, as we gather together, um, what that means specifically on the Lord's Day, 
Now, one of, the, one of the benefits of the Reformation was the idea that uh, all of life is worship and that there are things that we do as worship before the Lord, which is true. But there's something distinctive about what happens um, on Lord's Day and when we come together before his throne. And so that's, <clears throat> that's, a, that's a unique aspect then of what, of what we're talking about. Um, it's a unique blessing of corporate worship. As such, and we're going to talk about this um, week four or five. As such, when we gather together, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Um, that's a plural y'all. It's not just a you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Um, but collectively, together, we form the temple. So if you see, um, a little preview ahead here, when you see throughout Scripture God appearing as fire, when he comes down on the tabernacle and the holiest of holies, and again on the, in the temple, Solomon's temple, we see the same thing happening on the day of Pentecost, uh, when, the, when the people are gathered together, the collective temple uh, of the Holy Spirit, God descends in flames of fire uh, and, and is present within the context of his people. And so as such, all, that, um, all the language of, um, of giving you a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone, the tablets were in the holiest of holies. Now it's written upon our hearts. Uh, the law. All those, those aspects then are, are apparent within the context of God's people gathered together on the Lord's Day. There's, so there's a beautiful collective aspect of that that comes together as we corporately, congregationally come together on the Lord's Day. In, uh, in their book, uh, With Reverence and All, um, Mirth and Heart write, the Bible does teach that God has promised to bless the means of grace that he provides in worship in a way that he has not promised to bless anything else. To take the word, sacraments, and prayer for granted, in other words, to disregard public worship as something to be added on to personal devotions or small group fellowship, is to trivialize worship and put ourselves at risk. That's strong language. The means of grace are part and parcel of Christian worship. We worship to praise God and to give him the glory that he alone deserves. And in worship through the means of grace, God is also at work, extending his blessing to his people and transforming us into his image. Um, you may have heard uh, Nate say again and again, and probably says this in the new members class at some point in time or another, uh, that the Bible knows no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. You know, that there is a need to be together, that this is what uh, God has called us to together, that, that plural y'allness of being the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so this is what happens specifically on Lord's Day worship as he calls us together. As we gather together, we, we are the house of the Lord, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Um, so as such, as we gather together, then the elements of worship, what we do together then matters. Um, again, with regard to word, sacrament, and prayer, you see from the very beginning of the church in Acts 2, you know, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Right there you've got teaching, you've got the word, uh, you've got uh, the breaking of bread, the sacrament, uh, and the prayers. Interestingly, it's plural, uh, because you know, we're talking about the, the, the active uh, prayers throughout the day. You know, like the psalmist says, seven times a day I praise you, or the watches of the night. Uh, those aspects of the uh, of the the daily prayer services, uh, much of what is what is carried over in um, in monastic life, uh, the, those ideas of the specific times of day to stop and pray, but this is this is what was part and parcel of the early church. It was teaching, 
it was the sacraments, uh, and it was prayer. Interestingly, uh, historically, singing has always been recognized as prayer because it is something that is done together. It is, it is congregational corporate prayer, which is why, um, especially if you're old enough to remember hymn books and, uh, and, and uh, in those churches, uh, hymns often end with amen because it's the end of a prayer, uh, so be it. And so that's why it has that, uh, that quality of prayer in, in the, uh, the corporate sense. Um, that's a whole other part of the discussion, but, but just in terms of how you see that, how that fits then together. So as such then, there, there are several different ways that you can look at how to structure service. And I wanna look at several of these with regards to um, current practices and what are some of the benefits or the potential pitfalls uh, in those approaches. So you see on the page there, um, five ways of structuring a service is, uh, is worship evangelism or outreach. Uh, how, does that, uh, how does that change the focus or how does that, um, be, how does that work as an emphasis? Sometimes this goes to the extent, and you know, there's a continuum here, so you know, some examples may be extreme one way or the other. But there, you know, there, are, there are churches and there are pastors who refuse to use the word sin because that might be offensive to those who are unbelievers who come into the church. And the desire to have them within the church, within the, within the context of a service, uh, mitigates then um, what, how you present the gospel and, uh, and what you do in that context. Um, it may make, you want to make people feel comfortable. Uh, you want to break down barriers through music, drama, humor, etc. Um, notice then, though, that in the focus becomes what's going to attract someone. Um, how do we make someone feel comfortable? You know, um, we see again and again in Scripture that Christ is a stumbling block, um, and that is a, a beautiful and difficult thing. Um, but so is the truth, and especially the truth spoken in love. That doesn't mitigate our need to evangelize, but is that the place for uh, within corporate worship? Worship occurs before God. First Chronicles sixteen twenty nine says, "Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness." Coming before Him, uh, we know that sinners cannot stand in the presence of God. Is God calling his people who have been cleansed through the blood of Christ? Uh, Psalm 102 says, Serve the Lord with gladness, come into his presence with singing. Once again, that aspect of coming before, before God, being called into his presence. Evangelism has, uh, has man as the object, and that occurs as the church goes out. As it goes out from worship, we see in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, and in Acts 1.8, as you are going, be my witnesses. So as, as you are equipped and fed and are sent out, witness. Uh, of course, you know, the word witness literally means martyr. Um, be my witnesses and go out and evangelize. Now, that does not mean that unbelievers are not welcome within the context of a worship service. In fact, it's a glorious opportunity to see the beauty of Christ. Um, God summons his people. Uh, if, they are, if unbelievers are present, they're not in Christ and are not included in the heavenly access to the throne. But there is benefit there. As 1 Corinthians 14 says, if outsiders are present, they should be convicted by what they see and hear. Um, it says, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. 
He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So the focus is not on on particularly engaging the unbeliever, but in the context of doing what the church does as the church before God, uh, the reality of that, the verity of that, the truth of that, the beauty of that is convicting. But it's not because it's been scripted in such a way to specifically be that. By its very nature, it is that. When you encounter the living God, you cannot help but recognize your own deficiencies, your own sin. Um, And then that brings about the call of repentance. So that's one aspect there, as evangelism or outreach. Um, Worship as education. This is part of the... um, the, um, um, leftovers from, uh, from the Enlightenment. The idea of gathering together with an expert up front uh, who's giving a lecture and people take notes and, uh, and learn things and then leave. Um, and, this, and this kind of model, you know, worship is kind of the warm-up. You know, you know, getting ready for the main event, which is, which is the sermon, right? Um, or So you have an expert who lectures, people take notes, Uh, It's very much like that imparting of knowledge. However, (laughs) in Scripture, um, we see also that the emphasis is not on teaching. As the uh, the people of God gather together, Psalm 95, O come, let us sing to the Lord, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Um, In Isaiah and in Matthew, uh, which Christ is is, uh, quoting there, he says, you know, my house shall be called a house of prayer. That's, once again, not negating the the need for evangelism or the need for instruction and teaching, Um, but in terms of the holistic understanding of, of what worship is. We see an active participatory uh, coming before the Lord in thanksgiving, in worship, bowing down before the Lord, our maker. Another aspect is uh, the idea of worship as experience. Uh, This is more about the inner experience or the heart response. Um, Once again, that elicits more of a focus on the uh, the person in the pew. Um, There's a sense, too, and I've heard this from various uh, television preachers, the, the idea of needing to give kind of a psychological warm-up or, or encouragement to get people through the week. You know, so there's this idea that if you can get people focused on, you know, on God or something else, and you can encourage them, then they have the impetus then to move into the difficulties of daily life. Um, the problem is, once again, that becomes more centered on what kind of response is engendered in the person uh, in the pew or the, or the chair. Um, we see in Scripture, again, that worship is active. It's offering, it's prostrating, it's confessing, it's kneeling, it's singing, it's bringing gifts. Uh, those aspects of sacrifice that we see in the Old Testament uh, are still active in the New Testament. We see again and again the aspects of, of, of sacrificing our bodies, bringing our bodies as a sacrifice, or thanksgiving as a sacrifice, or uh, our goods as sacrifice. And we'll talk about more of that later as well in the subsequent weeks. But there's an active quality to that. It's not just about receiving. There's an engagement there. People do things before God in worship. 
And that's part of what we see. Even in the early days um, um, of the church, the, even the idea of the offering, um, and you see the, the, the hangover of this with regards to uh, the offertory in uh, early aspects of, of Christian liturgy. The offering is the people, the congregation, bringing the goods, the food items for the sacrament. And so people would come forward with bread and wine and honey and, and, and that being part of then the worship of um, the sacrificial quality, but the offering then leading to the sacrament. So it's all interconnected there. Um, worship is objective as well. You know, worship is evaluated not according to the effect on the worshipers, but whether it is acceptable to God or not. We see this very early on in, uh, in Genesis 4, the story of Cain and Abel, uh, in which they both bring sacrifices. One is accepted and one is rejected. Um, in Exodus 32, we have really great intentions when the people of Israel wanted to you know, make the golden calves. They wanted something tangible that they, could, that they could then worship God, the true God, but they did it not in the ways in which he had prescribed. Um, they offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, uh, not what God uh, required of them. In Romans 12, you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be, trans- conf- not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. In Hebrews uh, 12, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. There's an aspect of God sets the rules. He sets the agenda of what happens in worship before him. Next one, uh, worship as praise or exaltation. Um, does not fully express the other forms of scriptural worship. Uh, celebrations are only part of the picture. Um, how we use the word worship does not take into account things like prostrating ourselves before God. Praise cannot be disinterested as well. Um, we, we continually receive life and redemption from God. There's, there's, a, there's a back and forth there, so it's not just a matter of, of a one-way um, aspect of worship, but that he calls us, but then he also feeds us and equips us. And that has a tendency to become one-sided. Now, all these, once again, there there are aspects of all these which are part of the Christian life and part of worship. But the emphasis then on what happens in Lord's Day worship is basically a combination of some of these things, but in the context then of gospel renewal. Uh, What does it mean when uh, God has called us together into his presence? Um, one thing, too, that you'll hear, you know, we use the word worship a lot, and uh, sometimes you'll get people defining that as, as, as worship, uh, that idea of giving praise to, to one who is worthy, um, which is an old English word, uh, Anglo-Saxon, reverence paid to supernatural divine being, which only comes from about 1300, so it's not that old of a word. Um, one of the things that you see with regards to what is translated as worship is more of a word that means bow down in the Hebrew, um, which is one of the interesting things that you see um, with regards to the, the uh, injunction against the people, the children of Israel, that they are stiff-necked. Somebody who is stiff-necked does not bow their neck. They don't bow. 
Um, and so that, that aspect of being humble and in service to, um, being, you know, bending your neck, bowing, is that aspect of, of what we um, translate as worship. It's an adoration, a response to God's gifts of forgiveness, life, knowledge, and glory. He gives, and by faith we receive. Uh, it's a quote here. Faith will never reach that degree of maturity where it could live without receiving. A grateful reception of God's gracious gifts will always remain the task of Christian worship, for it is impossible to evolve a church service out of the spiritual assets of the believers. From God back to God. So with regards to the gospel flow of worship, we see in Genesis 1 that God speaks. So anything after that is a response of some sort or another. He initiates. Uh, he has spoken, uh, we respond. He speaks, we respond. Um, it is not an initiation. So when God calls his people to worship, and I've got the five sections down here, the gospel flow. Those are the five sections that you'll see weekly in the bulletin, um, in the all caps underlined with a little description. Um, that's part of, um, part of helping kind of walk through the flow. I should have a bulletin. So you see from the very beginning of the bulletin, God calls his people and reveals himself. So there's a difference here, too, between uh, the idea of God calling his people and uh, having a call to worship and an invocation. Um, God calls us to worship. An invocation is an appeal to, for God to be present. Um, invocation literally means to call. So an invocation, like at the beginning of a sporting event or a meeting, is basically saying, God, we're gathered here together and we ask for you to be present and to, be, you know, to bless this gathering uh, of whatever sort. That's not what happens in Lord's Day worship. We haven't decided to gather together and now we're asking God to be present. It's God who has initiated us to come before his presence. And so it's God who's calling us, not us who's calling God to be a part of what we're doing. And it's, it's a... It's not just semantics. You know, that, that is a significant, uh, significant difference. Uh, it's a difference of perspective as to who initiates. Um, he commands us from heaven to enter into his presence, and we respond in obedience as the Spirit effectually calls us, enables us. Um, so this also is the language of covenant and of sacrifice. When God initiates covenants, when God initiates covenants, he calls someone or he calls a people. He calls them out of uh, Ur. He calls them out of their family. He calls them out of, of Egypt. Uh, and he renames them. So effectively speaking, on, on the Sunday morning, Lord's Day, God is calling us out of the world as his people to enter before his throne, to worship with the saints of old and, all the, and, and, and the, uh, the church invisible. And so there's, there's that aspect then that we see, the separation of the world, this, this, this sense that this is holy ground, um, like, like Moses, that he's called us into that. Uh, he's promised to be with his people in a special manner as they gather on his day. And so that, that's, how the, that's how the service begins. Um, and the idea of service, too, is, is that, um, is that it, it's like waiting on tables, you know, um, 
I'll be your server this evening. You know, that we are serving God. Um, once again, there's that mutual aspect there. But we are, you know, when you, know, when you go to a restaurant, um, the waiter doesn't decide what to bring you for dinner. You know, you order, you know, you, you make your, your request known and they, they facilitate that, they bring that. Um, you know, they're taking care of you, as the, you know, the phrase is now, um, because you, you are the guest. You know, we, are, we are called before God, but he's the one that sets the agenda. You know, he's the one that, that, uh, that says in his word what he requires, and then we respond in that. So we're called into his presence. Um, one of the first things that happens in terms of the worship service is we recognize who God is and who we are not, uh, which hopefully leads us to repentance um, because we recognize how we have fallen short through the week, through our life, you know, through the morning. So God calls his people to confession, repentance, and reconciliation. Um, and as he does so then, that prepares us and equips us then to be able to hear his word, uh, which is the next section. God calls his... Uh, I skipped that. There's another one in there. There should be six. Uh, God, God instructs us in his word. On page. Watch it not be in here either. Ah, teaches us through his word. Page six. Yes. So from repentance then, God instructs us. Um, after that, uh, he calls his people to his table. He feeds us. Equips us. We respond in praise, and then he sends us out. So we see that in terms of covenantal language. I mean, that's essentially what happens within the context of, of a covenant or in the gospel. That God calls his people, separates them, renames them, instructs them, uh, gives them promises of what will happen with obedience, provides some sort of tangible uh, sign or, or seal of that covenant. Uh, and then sends that person or people out. Yeah. So from, from the initiation of covenants with, with Adam and with Noah and with Abraham and with Moses, um, all the way to the new covenant with, uh, with Christ, you see, that, you see that pattern there. So even in the context of worship, he calls us, he instructs us, he gives us a tangible sign and seal through the sacraments, and then he sends us out. And so there's a very real sense in which Sunday is the first day of the week because that is what he is sending us into the next week uh, to do what he has called us to do as, as his people. Um, but also, this is the flow of the gospel. This is what happens in regeneration, right? God initiates. He calls his people to himself. He calls an individual to himself. Um, one of the first you know, steps, that you, as, you, as you gain insight from the Spirit uh, in that call, you recognize that God is who he says he is and that you are a sinner in need of redemption, in need of his favor, which leads to repentance. He instructs us as to what that means. He continually provides for us day to day and sends us equipped to do what he's called us to do. So the structure then, the plan then, the purpose is, even through the weekly service, is to walk through the gospel. To be reminded from the very beginning that God initiates. Uh, God calls us to repentance. He reveals himself, prepares us, and sends us out. 
and that we respond to his initiation in wonder and gratitude and awe and worship. And so for our own hearts, that should be an opportunity then to, you know, to remember those things that we need to remember um, because we are forgetful people. Um, I know, especially when I was younger, I'd read the stories of the Hebrews in the desert and think, how could they be so stupid and forget all the time? Um, because obviously God did all these wonderful things for them. Um, and then you get older and you realize how much we forget and the necessity uh, and the call to remember. And God says again and again in his word, remember, remember, remember. Um, and, to, and to be reminded then, even within the context of congregational cor- corporate worship, who he is, what he has done, and then our response to that, and the responsibility as well that he has given us to live into that over the next week. So that, that's, the, that's the idea then of how the, the service is structured for those purposes. It includes those things that we talked about. Yes, we learn, but it's not primarily about education. Um, yes, the unbeliever can, can be witnessed to within the context of the service. Um, yes, there's praise. Yes, there's an experiential aspect about it. But none of those things dominate. Uh, those are aspects of it. But the dominating aspect is, is who God is and what he's called us to. And one of the great truths of the Reformation, too, is the idea of the centrality of the word in worship, uh, which sometimes is taken to mean that the sermon is the most important thing. Um, but what we've done, what we try to do, what services have tried to do over the centuries, is, um, is, is that all of the service has the word as central. So not just that this, the preaching of the word is the central thing, but the word of God is central to all aspects of the service, which is why we sing psalms, uh, which is why, you know, you notice the call to worship is, is always from scripture. Um, the, um, the, there's a secondary scripture reading, Old and New Testament reading. The prayer of confession is scriptural. The assurance of pardon is from scripture. Obviously, the sermon is, is scripture. Um, and then as well, the benediction. And so scripture permeates the entirety of the service from the beginning to the end, uh, and even in the responses that we sing that are, you know, we sing a lot of, a fair number of psalms throughout the context of, um, of the service as well. And that's in response to what God has said. So it, the word is central to the entirety of the service, not just in the preaching of the word. And the beautiful thing that happens in that too is, is um, even in the, in the way the, the service comes together, um, you know, sometimes a sermon can't encapsulate every aspect of a particular passage um, just because of, of time limitations. Yes, there are time limitations. <laughs> um, but there, there are times, though, too, in which what we sing or the other, the other scripture that's included um, are referencing those aspects of, of the sermon um, in ways that can't be fully expressed within the context of, of the sermon itself. Um, but is, is related to the context of the scripture passage. Which means, too, one of the things that we try to do is that, that um, all those aspects from the call to worship to the prayer of confession to the benediction are all, and the songs that we sing are all tied into the theme of, of that particular scriptural passage for the sermon. And so if, if, there's a, you know, if there are particular uh, theological points that are coming out within the context of the sermon, 
we've already sung about some of those, and we're going to sing about them some more. Um, the scripture passages have already referenced those, um, and then that that also pertains to then to what the overarching uh, context of the service. So there's an intentionality there of not just, hey, this is a fun hymn to sing, but this hymn particularly by its words have a connecting point to the sermon itself. Now, the, the beautiful aspect of the work of the Spirit in this too is that sometimes, um, you know, sometimes I'll choose a hymn based on the second verse because I think that's what we're really going to key into to the, the, the sermon that day. And then in the context of the service itself, realize it was really the fourth verse um, that you know, the Spirit had in mind because of where things have developed over the course of time. And the other aspect, too, is, is, is the, the um, even in the context of planning, what it means to shepherd and disciple the congregation through the service, which means that the quality of, of, of or the idea of a song at the beginning of the service is different than the song we sing at the end when we're being sent out. Um, you know, what we sing during communion is different than, than what we sing uh, after the sermon. That, that even the, the choice of music or even how it's played, sometimes, um, I don't know if how many of you have actually been to first and second service on the same day. Um, sometimes this, the sermon turns out a little bit different. Sometimes a lot different. But, I mean, but sometimes the emphasis is different, such that you know, at the beginning of the first service, the sermon may end up here. Uh, second service, the sermon may end here in terms of the tone uh, or the intensity of it. Um, and so we, we have the, 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 the desire and the ability and I think the responsibility in terms of shepherding to respond that way. So when we sing after the sermon, if we end here, this is where I'm going to start. Uh, if we end here, that's where I'm going to pick up. So that from the standpoint of not you know, moving back and forth in terms of the congregation, but being aware of how the Spirit is working in the context of the morning service, even after all the planning's been done, but even how it evolves in the context of that hour and a half, being responsive to that, even in the, even in the moment, um, to, to respond to that and to shepherd and disciple um, us together in that. So that, that's the idea of why we do what we do and how that pulls together. Um, once again, from um, with reverence and awe, the contrast between the church and the world will be most obvious when the church is at worship. The church in worship should be like that described by Paul in 1 Thessalonians, that is, turning from idols to serve a living and true God. The very act of worship, of assembling in the presence of God, therefore, is simultaneously the church's renunciation of the world. Worship is a subversive and countercultural act of an alien people who, forsaking the world, listen to the voice of her master saying, follow me. True worship, then, will be odd and perhaps even weird to the watching world. Christian worship is, in fact, a bold political act. It subverts the world's values by assigning glory and praise to the one whom the world despises. And as weak as the church at worship might appear to the watching world, the truth is that the powers of this world are no match for the power of God who is present among his people when they gather to sing praise, pray, and hear his word. Moreover, the church must reject the claim that worship is old-fashioned, irrelevant, and isolated from the real world. For believers, the church at worship is the real world. That's the foundation of where we're, we're trying to come from a week-to-week -week basis uh, in terms of planning the service and, and including the elements that we do. Um, as I said, this is kind of a, 
this is a cosmic discussion, um, and it has a lot of implications, and so a lot of these threads will hopefully gather together over the course of the next few weeks. Um, are there any questions at this point, though, specifically about the idea of the weekly worship being a reflection of the gospel? <laughs> but um, when you make a statement that the services can end, or the, the first service versus the second service, and how the sermon may end in the tone, and then how you then will lead the music, um, elaborate on that, and how I mean, the Lord is, the Lord works in being sensitive to the tone, and then how you follow that. Yeah, I think part, partly that comes from the, even the preparing of the musicians. Um, it's not that we um, you know, sing a song the same way every time. And so you know, we're going to sing this song this way, this arrangement, every time. So there's a flexibility there to respond to what's going on. And so, and so if, um, like I said, if, if it, the sermon ends on a kind of a high note, you don't want to start the next piece slow and dour, you know. So that some of that may be actually in terms of tech, you know technical aspects, tempo, um, you know, if it's faster or slower, um, or even even the approach of 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 starting this piece or playing the piece. Um, sometimes even what octave to begin in, depending on what's you know. Sometimes it, it's it's rare that it's so markedly different, but there are times in which it is just in kind of keying off of, of, of where something has landed. Um, that's just kind of being, yeah, trying to be responsive to that, even in the technical aspects of, of, of leading in that regard. Yeah, Barbara? Yes, and it depends upon the context, too. I think especially um, leading into confession, sometimes we need a bit more space. Um, sometimes in communion. Sometimes in communion we just need more time, you know, depending upon, you know, <laughs> how long the songs are and how many people are there. Like, you know, one more time through, you know, instrumental verse, first verse again, another instrumental. Um, but yeah, so there's that there's that quality too. But some some of that is also being sensitive to you know, even in extending things, knowing where to extend, how to extend, and what to what to repeat. Um, and even too, I mean, you'll notice sometimes if there's more music than there are um, people coming forward for communion. Um, often, when most of the people are through communion, and I know most of the people are back in their pews and hopefully have their music in front of them. Um, actually, get louder. And, and allow for more full voice singing uh, at that point, uh, kind of conclude more um, more strongly there. So all those things kind of play in together there that way as well. Yes? How do you account for the lack of cultural differences in worship and worship styles, you know, worldwide, even, even community, community-wide? How does that fit with scripture and this may be a topic for another day? How do you account for all um, that's a that's a good question. That is an important question, and that is more than we have time for today, because um, <laughs> um, we have about two minutes, and I, would, I do want to sing. Um, that is some of what what I, what I want to um, 
what I want to lay out too, which I think is important, is uh, the idea of the principles, biblical principles of worship. How that gets applied in times and places, uh, culturally in, in different, different parts of the world, um, is going to be expressed differently. And that's a short answer. Um, but in terms, of, in terms of where God has placed us in this time and in this location in Middle Tennessee in the 21st century, you know, how do we express these principles of worship appropriately? Uh, the idea is not to be a throwback you know, either to you know, the 1980s or the 1780s, um, that we're not, trying to, not, we're not trying to be a box church in Leipzig, uh, and we're also not trying to recapture some sort of you know, older period. There, there's, you know, there's, the church is living um, and being responsive to where God has placed her in time and space is important, but then the but the principles remain the same. So, and we will get into some more of that later. Um, I do want to sing quickly though, in the couple of minutes that we have, or minutes that we don't have. So, um, along these lines of the idea idea of setting the context of glory and holiness. Um, Picked up, glory be to God the Father. I suppose we should stand. Glory be to God the Father. Glory be to God the Son. Glory be to God the Spirit. Great Jehovah, three in one. Glory, 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 while eternal ages run. Glory be to him who loved us, washed us from each spot and stain. Glory be to him who bought us, made us kings with him to reign. Glory, 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 glory to the Lamb that once was slain. Glory to the King of angels, glory to the church's King. Glory to the King of nations, heaven and earth your praises bring. Glory, 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 to the King of glory bring. Glory, blessing, praise eternal, thus the choir of angels sings. Honor, riches, power, dominion, thus its praise creation brings. Glory, 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 glory to the King of kings. Amen. Thank you. See you next week.